basketball. It's all about playing the game the right way. The name on the front of the jersey is more important than that name on the back of the jersey. You play for the Indiana Pacers. That's who you represent. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the All Pacers podcast. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at all.pacers for all your daily news and content and join the great community of fans we have there. I am Jeremy, and as always, I'm joined by Jack and Breezy. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good, Jeremy. I'm doing really good today. All right, so we don't have time for shout-outs or talking about any games or anything today because we have a very special guest coming on, the one and only Scott Pollard, coming up next. Today's episode is brought to you by Blockheads by Combs. It's a new Christmas single out on iTunes, Spotify, any music platform that you can think of. Jeremy, where do you listen to music? Always on Spotify. Same, man. And if you didn't know, Combs is actually our producer who we call Austin or Breezy or whatever else we've called him here. Yo, yo, yo. There he is. So not only does he produce this podcast and give us random stats about Jonathan Bender and Austin Crozier, he also makes music. So be sure to go check that out. And now let's talk to Scott. Today, we are super happy to have Scott Pollard with us as our first ever guest on All Pacers Pod. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Uh, we have some questions for you today. We just want to have some fun talking to a former player. Uh, Jack, go ahead and get us started. Scott, so currently you're living in Indy or around that area, right? Yeah, we live in Carmel. All right, so do you go to a lot of Pacer games now or really how often do you get to go to Pacer games? <clears throat> We've been to a couple this year. Uh, we got a couple coming up that we're going to. We're going to go to the Boston game and the Sacramento Kings game. Oh, right on. So I know you played for a lot of teams. Um, so when you go to the Pacers games, are you a Pacers guy or do you go for the other teams you played for? Um, <laughs> it depends on who gives me the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> good call. Good call. <laughs> Scott, we have so much we want to talk to you about the NBA, about Sacramento, Indy, just really everywhere you've gone, your championship in Boston. But before we do that, Let's first talk about Kansas. So, Austin, I know you have a stat for Scott about his time in Kansas. Go ahead, Austin. Yeah, Scott. So, we actually start each pod here with a stat of the day. So, Scott, I was wondering if you remembered this particular date in history, March 13th, 1997, we're in Memphis, Tennessee, the Kansas Jayhawks playing Jackson State. And I might have found the stat line of your college career here. Uh, 12 points, 19 boards, 6 blocks, uh, and a first-round victory there. Uh, that was your senior year, right? Yeah, that was my senior year. Um, actually, that, <laughs> that game uh, is when they snapped a picture of me, and that's when they put me on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Is no from that way. Game. Yeah. I get. I actually just got one sent to me last week. People still send them to me once in a while to autograph it and send them back. I'm no sure they're way. selling them on the, on the black market for millions of dollars. <laughs> for millions, of course. Millions. So, do you have that Sports Illustrated picture hung up in your house anywhere? Uh, I do. It's framed uh, in in my sports memorabilia closet in my office. You can kind of okay. see it, but it's. Um, I, I've got team basketballs that are autographed. I've got a piece of the floor that I played on that they gave me. No um, way. I've got a Wilt Chamberlain autographed ball. I mean, I've got some other sports memorabilia. I've got my NBA championship ball from the Celtics. I got yes. my NBA finals ball from the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2007. Uh, but my two uh, most prized possessions, uh, as far as Jayhawk stuff, is my team basketballs from 96, 97. What was it like playing with Paul Pierce in college? Okay. Uh, Paul, <laughs> it was funny. Uh, his, his freshman year, when he came on his trip, actually, before his freshman year, uh, he was only 16 years old. He had headphones on the entire time <laughs> and didn't really speak much. Uh, I wasn't his host. It was somebody else. I think it was Jock, but um, he didn't speak much. And we were just like, what's wrong with this kid? <laughs> and uh, then we realized he was only 16 years old and he was probably yeah. just intimidated and he's shy. And he, he, he still has that part of him, uh, I think, at times. But uh, he got there. He was 17 years old as a freshman. And, and wow. we used to call him Bambi. Because we we could see just like we could see the talent, we could see how good he was gonna be, but he was all elbows and knees, and yes. he, you know his all his he still I mean throughout his whole NBA career played with his elbows out. I don't know if you if you really recognize that about Paul Pierce, but his elbows yeah. were always out. And so when he was younger and skinnier, um, you know he, he did look a lot like Bambi, and we were just like, man, this kid's gonna be <laughs> special. 
even though he was for him awkward and, and elbows and knees and uh, still really strong with the ball. And, and the thing about him that I remember the most of, of from our college days together was it didn't matter who uh, after practice he had to he, he would just play anybody after practice one-on-one. And even if nobody else on the team wanted to play with him, if a coach would play or a manager, he would just, he, he just loved being in the gym and, and play a pickup game with whoever would play against him and just work on his game and work on his moves. Um, and that's the one thing I really remember about uh, his basketball uh, yeah. time at Kansas was just his, his willingness to just be on the court and work on his moves. Did you ever play against him one-on-one? Yeah, I don't remember who won. Probably me, but I was <laughs> bigger and stronger and, uh, than him in in college. So, what year were you? What year were you when he was a freshman? Uh, it was my junior year when he was a freshman. We played together his his freshman and sophomore year, were cool. my junior and senior year. In your opinion, what was the best moment in your career at Kansas? Uh, there, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, mine personally. Um, you know, you, you, you want to say, Oh, it was when I had my career high, this and that, you know, but, um, mine, mine personally, uh, was, I don't know, individually, I hit a three, um, my last, (laughs) my last home game, senior night, uh, in front of 17,000 of my best friends. Amazing. And, uh, so I finished my career at Kansas 100% from the three point line. No way. So I have that record in the history of Kansas basketball. Yeah, you do. Uh, I, I shot 100% from the three-point line in college. But uh, as, a, as a teammate or a team player, which I guess defines my NBA career, mm-hmm. um, I would say that my favorite moment, uh, there was a couple of them. I mean, it was one of them was early on my freshman year. And I know Hoosiers don't want to hear this, but Damon Bailey came into our house and had 33 points uh, for the Indiana Hoosiers. And mm-hmm. uh, it was our freshman year, Jock and I. Uh, and, uh, at the end of the game, Jock had a game winner <laughs> we ran <laughs> off the court. Uh, and that was one of my favorite moments as, as a Jayhawk. And it was really early on in our career. It was one of our first home games. Yeah. Uh, and it was really a welcome to Kansas basketball moment because, uh, by the time we got back to our, our room, uh, our dorm, which has secure doors at the, on the, on the main level. Uh, so people were able to get in somehow, but our entire door, cause Jock and I were roommates, uh, was decorated. No way. Fans just saying, awesome game winner. You're the man, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And that was something that neither one of us being from Southern California had ever experienced. I mean, we had played in all-star games together and the Nike camp together. Um, so we knew each other a little bit, but both of us were from Southern California, which, uh, is not really a hoops bastion because uh, it's they're, they're, it's an outdoor place of the world. People don't go there uh, to go watch basketball games. You want to be outside when you're in Southern California. So crowds uh, and fans caring a whole lot about basketball is rare in, in Southern California, and that's where both of us are from. So for us to, to, to experience that earlier in our career, we were like, whoa, this is <laughs> – we're in Kansas, Dorothy. We're not in Southern <laughs> California anymore. So you're from San Diego, right? Yeah. Okay, I I lived out there the past five years, actually. I just moved back to Indiana. What part in San Diego? Uh, Del Mar. I went to Torrey Pines High School. Graduate. Oh, right on. Cool. I was down in Chula Vista, so a stone's throw from Tijuana. Yeah, the Chula, man. That was yes. Mexico. Chulawana, yep. Yeah. Uh, did you still call Paul Pierce Bambi when you joined Boston? <laughs> no, he, he wasn't Bambi anymore. <laughs> um, he, he was full-on grown up. Uh, I don't know what Bambi's dad's name was, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think Bambi knows what the Bambi's dad's name was, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, no, we uh, there there were other nicknames that he got later on in his career at Kansas, but uh, I'm not going to share those right now. <laughs> <laughs> we can do it off the record later. Um, but uh, but yeah, Paul, we, he was he was P cubed, P squared. Um, so we just the truth. I mean, he kind of nicknamed himself the truth. Actually, Shaq named him the truth. But oh, cool, cool. Um, you know, we called him all kinds of stuff, and he's a guy that whatever, just give him the ball. You know, that that's what you call him. Give me the ball mm-hmm. because uh, he's gonna he's gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you got drafted by Detroit. Um, what was your first season like as a rookie in the NBA? Uh, as a rookie in the NBA, there's a lot of learning experiences. Um, you know, for me, uh, 
I, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I realized it, but I, I didn't recognize, I think, um, the importance of, uh, what was, what was happening. Um, and what I mean is, you know, you, you, you aspire to become an NBA player. If you're a basketball player, you want to play in the league. It doesn't matter if you're born in Egypt or, or, you know, South Carolina, that's mm-hmm. a basketball player. That's it. And so you, you watch the game and you watch your favorite players and superstars and then all of a sudden you're on the court with them. That is a surreal experience. But I, as I was saying, I don't know that I appreciated the fact that I got to guard David Robinson and Patrick Ewing and Hakeem Olajuwon and Shaquille O'Neal and um, Charles Barkley. And I mean, just wow. Like the when when I hear these players that are, you know, my talent level or even better, and they're having these ridiculous statistical games, I'm going, yeah, but you got, uh, yeah, no Hall of Famers on the other team. Like, <laughs> it seemed like every other night I was playing against one of the top 50 players that ever played a game. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm not knocking the current players. I'm not saying they can't play. I'm just saying it's a different game. There aren't the big men in the game today, the way the game has changed. Everybody knows that. But um, for me as a rookie, it was definitely like I got on the court one time and I'm guarding Patrick Ewing. I mean, that was who I wanted to be when I was a kid. I tried to rip the rim off every time I dunked it because Patrick Ewing did that. And, you know, I guarded Shaquille O'Neal in his prime. Name other players that have ever been able to do that. There's not very many of us. (laughs) I don't know if anyone could guard him in his prime. Oh, no. I mean, I, I, I did my best. It wasn't yeah. like I stopped it. I got somebody called me the shack stopper one time. I was like, name one time when I stopped him. <laughs> <laughs> like, I tried to slow him down as best I could. I wasn't scared of him. I'm not scared of anybody. It's a, it's a freaking game. But, yeah. um, you know, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, stop the guy? Like, I, there were times where I thought I did well against Shaq. And then I look at the stat sheet. He's got... 38 points and 24 <laughs> rebounds and six blocks. I'm like, yeah, I really slowed him down. I'm the Shaq stopper. Yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, like, um, it, it, there was, there was a whole lot of, of those type of things by rookie year where you, it's a welcome to the NBA. Like you're here. And then, as I said, looking back on it, uh, you know, from an old man's perspective now, yeah, I mean, I watch these games now. I'm like, you're not even – there's no Yao Ming out here. You're not guarding a 7'6 guy that can shoot over anyone and make it every single time. You're not guarding some of the giants that have ever played the game. George Mirasan, Sean Bradley, the tallest players that have ever played, or yeah. Luke Bull. Um, you know, like, the the game is different, and, and the way the game is played is different. But, you know, the Hall of Famers now in, in this current league are all guards. I mean, LeBron is a freak. He's almost my size. Uh, but you know, he doesn't play in the post very much cause he doesn't have to, he can still overpower people, uh, as, as playing in a guard position. So, I mean, I got to play against magic Johnson. I got to play against, you know, I was on the same court with a whole lot of just incredible legendary players throughout my career, but especially as a rookie, it's just something that you just, you know, you're trying to soak it all up, but I'm, I'm playing with. Joe Dumars and Rick Mahorn, some of the original Detroit bad boys. Right. We wanted to ask you about that. What was that like? Well, Rick, you know, Rick was kind of the jokester. Joe was kind of at the end of his, like, not that neither one of them, they were both at the end of their careers, but Joe was much more serious and and introverted. He didn't really mess with the rookies. He'd just get on the plane or the bus and open up his newspaper and keep to himself, look at his stock portfolio and, uh, you know, think about what was next in his life. He wasn't really, I mean, before and after almost every single practice at home, he would be playing tennis with the owner of the, of the Pistons. (laughs) Like Joe, Joe had moved on. He was old still, man. He still put on the, the, the jersey once in a while, and, and he, he was still very good. I'm not knocking that. But Joe's, Joe's personal life was definitely different than a typical NBA player. He, he was ready for the next step, and it was just he was finishing out his, his playing days uh, a little differently. But Rick was a jokester. Rick was doing the rookie hazing stuff. You know, he'd make me go get donuts or make, him go, make me go get him coffee or, or yeah. whatever. Um, and I remember one time we were, our flight was delayed out of Detroit. And so he was like, Hey, meet me at this address. And I went over there and it was a strip club. I'm like, dude, it's five o'clock at night. And you want to give me a drink at a strip club. I was like, um, yeah, this sounds like a setup, dude. No, thanks. You know, like, that's, that's not how I'm, I'm not showing up to a team flag my rookie year drunk from a strip club. <laughs> like, nah. <laughs> so, 
you know, Rick was a great teammate. I learned a lot from him. We're still very close. We mess with each other all the time. Anytime we see each other, uh, which is, you know, less often because I'm not, you know, currently with a team. But uh, yeah. when we do see each other, it's uh, it was great. He's a great guy. That's awesome. Scott, you mentioned getting to guard like some of those legends like Hakeem and Shaq, those guys. Did any of those guys in any of those games ever, on top of, you know, being the great players they were, did they ever just say anything to you? I know a lot of those guys talk trash. Um, did you ever get to experience that from any of those guys? Charles uh, Barkley uh, never stopped talking. And it's <laughs> obviously it's carried over to his post-NBA basketball career. I was going to say, he still uh, hasn't stopped talking. Yeah, very well. He's, he's, he's not going to uh, yeah. until they lay him in the ground. But um, Charles was, you know, he, he, he said, mouse in the house. I remember that. And, you know, it means you got a small guy guarding you. I'm like, Charles, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? He goes, all right, rookie, rookie in the house. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he talked a lot uh, and, and you know, he did his typical back me down from the three-point line. I'm thinking, I got this. And then he fade away and shot a jumper over my face and, and made it. And then, you know, it, he, he we didn't play against each other a whole bunch because uh, different positions and, you know, matchups, all that kind of stuff. But, um Shaq and I played against each other a lot, uh, especially when I was with Sacramento and he was with the Lakers. And um, we had a good rapport. Like, he, we would mess with each other, um, but it was never, like, animosity. It was just like, oh, man, you, you got your motorcycle? Yeah, I got one. You don't ride it very much, do you? No, no. I can't get seen riding that thing. You know, it's in tr- we get in trouble. So, you know, just kind of we would talk more than just talk trash. Um, and he, you know, once in a while – when my hair would be different, he'd just look at me like, man, you, you crazy. <laughs> I was like, well, I got to seem crazy so that I can keep up with you. And you're thinking about my crazy hair instead of dunking on my face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned a lot of really, really great players. Who, who are the hardest ones for you to guard? And who are some of the guys that were just dominating all the time, no matter when they stepped on the floor? And, Who's someone that like we wouldn't think of being one of those tough players to guard, or someone that was guarding you? Uh, my well, my rookie year, everybody was hard to guard. You know, you're getting used to 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 uh, old man strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, college strength is 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 guys that are you know 200 to 240 pounds, 245 pounds maybe, uh, and and you get nights off. There's not a seven footer every night in college. Uh, and so there was games where it was like, yeah, mouse in the house, like, give me the ball. I'm going to get you some, some buckets like that Jackson state game we talked about. I mean, there was nobody on their team over six, seven, six, eight. So yeah, I mean, it was like, give me the rock. I got this. Um, but, uh, you know, in the NBA, uh, obviously there's no nights off. There's always a seven footer. Even if it's somebody you haven't heard of, uh, there's always a seven footer on the other team. There's always a talent. It's one of the 450 best in the world, uh, that you're playing every single night. So there's no nights off. Um, so, you know, a random guy, Terry Cummings, like I remember regarding that guy. I was like, God, this is the strongest person I've ever seen in my life. Otis Thorpe, same thing. His hands, like, it seemed like his hands just put it, like, it was like a vice grip. He put a hand on me one time. I was like, damn. (laughs) And, you know, and then all of a sudden towards the end of my career, I did that to young players and they're doing the same thing. And they're like, Whoa, Hey man, he's holding me. And I'm like, I got one hand on you, little man, (laughs) you know? Um, so it's just, it, it, it's cyclical and, and it depends on who you're guarding, but there's always, there's always somebody that just gives you fits. I don't care who it is. And, um, it, it I'm, I'm so far removed from it now. I can't think of any individual, uh, besides just, you know, the legends of the game, even at the end of their careers, you know, Patrick here and I'm like, Oh man, he's old. And then all of a sudden he just turns and shoots a jump hook over my, over me. And I think it's like 50 feet in the air. Because yeah. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll get I'll get up there and block that. No, not even close. <laughs> um, you know, Hakeem. I was like, oh, Hakeem Olajuwon. He's 48 years old, and all of a sudden he does a spin move. I'm like, where'd he go? <laughs> you know. Um, so it, there was always the the greats were always great, even at the end of their careers when I was playing against them. Um, and then you know, I, I named a couple of uh, of guys that you wouldn't really normally think of, but there were just guys that's like, wow. Like there's no nights off. Even the backups have, are, are incredibly strong and athletic and you can't sleep on anybody. Yeah. I mean, the most athletic people in the world play in the NBA, it seems like. Yeah. And that's the thing. People forget about that. People forget, you know, like 
the worst NBA player is the 450th best player in the world. <laughs> there, that's you when you, when you think about that, like people are, oh man, I'm better than that guy. That guy's a bum, and I, and people do it. All fans of all sports, are like I could do that. I could be better than that. Yeah, sure you could. Sure, you could run <laughs> up and down the court 82 nights a year against the other 459 best players in the world yeah. and not look like an absolute fool. Like <laughs> it's it's incredible that the gall that people, you know, that, that fans come up with sometimes. And I'm talking about all sports. I'm not talking about, you know, and I don't I didn't care. I was witty and, and people would talk trash to me from the crowd. They're like, oh, Pollard, you suck. I'm like, yeah, you're paying a lot of money to watch me suck. How's that? <laughs> you know, like you, nobody could hurt my feelings. And it's weird. You know, I don't mean to jump subjects, but there's some recent stuff going on with the fans and the players interaction in the NBA. And it's really bothering me because I'm like, what? why are you not talking trash back to the fans and shutting them up? Are you that are you that dull witted? Well, you get fined 25000 right? Uh, well, no, because you don't have to use curse words. Oh, yeah. You can you can be smart and not have to be insulting. And you can be uh, insulting without being uh, derogatory or racist or slanderous. And if somebody's given it to you, you can absolutely give it right back to them. And you don't have to use words that you can't have kids here. And if it really takes to a new level, and that's the thing that people don't don't understand, and I don't think some of the NBA players understand it because this is a rule. They make an announcement every single game of a fan observe, you know, the the lewd conduct rule. Um, if any player really feels threatened or 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 offended by something a fan says, all he has to do is say security, and there's a security guy on your team on your bench. Every player, every team has one. And all you have to do is say, security, that person said this word or this thing, and I don't want them in here. And the security will go over, and at least, at the very least, that fan will be moved to a different seat. At the very least. That's all you have to do. You don't have to go, oh, they, they said this word, and it's offensive to me. You don't even have to go that far. If, you can't, if you're so dim-witted that you can't go back at a fan in a humorous way and make them look stupid then fine, you can't. And no, I get it. Not everybody is quick-witted and not everybody can do that and is a very good trash talker. I understand that. That's fake. That's fine. But what you can do is a very simple, quiet security. That person said this, I want them out. And every NBA player has that power, even the ones at the end of the bench. You don't even have to be a superstar. Every NBA player has that power. So when I hear these players, NBA players, complaining about fans' conduct – Oh, they hurt my feelings. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. You either give it back to them and grow up and be a man or tell security they said this or that and kick them out. And they, yeah. the fans can absolutely lose their season tickets for life. Like they can be banned from the building if they say some stuff and it's corroborated. So I, I just don't, I don't get it. I, I don't understand that. That's the only thing I will say that is soft about current players. I won't say they're soft in any other way. They're smarter. They're more athletic. They got better training. You know, they take care of themselves and their and their money better on the on the whole uh, than players from my generation. But what is very soft about them is their inability to deal with rude fans. Do you think that in the 70s and 80s and earlier, like think about Bill Russell. What do you think Bill Russell heard from fans in the 60s? Are you kidding me? Right. Are you kidding me? What he played through in Boston in the 60s in the civil rights era and right. Will Chamberlain? You don't think those men heard some awful awful things from the fans smoking cigars on the sideline. Like, get real, kids. Get real. This is the easiest time to be alive in the history of the planet for any human. And we all need to start acting like it. For sure. So going off that, uh, how do you think you would fare in the NBA now? Like, what would your role in the NBA be? I'd be murdering these kids. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, don't, I know that people are going to – you can laugh. It's fine. But there is absolutely nobody in this league that plays absolutely balls out hard at my size right now. Andre Drummond takes every other playoff and he's averaging 20 and 20. Yeah. And he can't, he can't make a free throw. He can't, I shot 70% from the free throw line my entire career from high school on. He can't make a free throw. And nobody's fouling this dude? Like, I mean, use your brain. I'm not saying I'm better or more talented than Andre Drummond. I'm just saying that dude... Just just to pick an example, I'd be killing him. He wouldn't be getting 20 and 20 on me, I guarantee you, because I'm bigger and stronger than he is. If I'm in my prime, I'm outrunning him, I'm getting 20 and 20 on him. 
and he's doing that to everybody else in the NBA. So that's that's a, that's one example that just can tell you what this league is like to me. And people say, oh, I can't shoot three pointers. I didn't need to shoot three pointers. I played with some of the best three point shooters in the history of the game: Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Peja Stojakovic, Mike Bibby. Uh, you think I'm going to go out there and start jacking up threes when I've got those guys as teammates? <laughs> no. I'm going to be a winner, and winners know their role. Winners do what they do best. You know what I did best? Knock down Peja Stojakovic's defender so he gets a wide-open three. And if he happens to miss, I'm underneath the basket tipping it in because that's what winners do, and that's what I did. We were always on playoff teams. I've only missed the playoffs one time since high school. My sophomore year of high school, played in the postseason, all four years of college, every year in the NBA except my rookie year. So I know a role. I played a role, and people are like, oh, you couldn't survive in this NBA because you can't shoot threes. I never needed to. But if I needed to, I would absolutely develop it. Look at look at the Lopez brothers. Are you kidding me? Right. Do you think those guys are, are, are three-point shooters? And I, I still don't know. I mean, it depends on what the team I'm on. If I'm on a great team that has great three-point shooters, I'm going to go back into my old role because I know what's going to make my team better. Me doing what I do best and them doing what they do best. But if I'm on a crap team and, and they need me, then I'll do the Kevin Love early in his career when he was Minnesota Timberwolves doing everything on the court because he didn't have any teammates ever. Yeah, that's that that's so true. Um, the thing I would say is Drummond has been playing those games, those 20 points plus 20 point or 20 rebounds plus against the Pacers, and he's just shredding us this year. I mean, he looks like the best player in the league whenever he's mashed up against Sabonis and Turner. Because he's playing against Sabonis, who is three inches shorter and probably 40 pounds lighter, mm -hmm. and who Miles Turner, who doesn't mix it up. It's not Miles' fault. Miles is the way he is. And Miles, I think, should accentuate his athleticism more and run more and, and maybe shoot three-pointers more. But he needs to practice th shooting three-pointers more because he's just not as consistent as I think he should be or as capable of being. But, uh, yeah, exactly. He, Andre Drummond outweighs both of those dudes, and he's a beast inside. Well, there's nobody on the Pacers roster that, that is a beast inside. They're more athletic and more skilled than Drummond in many different ways. But I'm saying, you know, you want me, my opinion? Yeah, in my prime, I'd be doing what Andre Drummond's doing in this league right now. And Because if he can do it to everybody, I know I could do it to everybody. Amazing. So let's move on. Let's talk about Sacramento a little bit. I know you mentioned it with Peja. So you got traded in, after your rookie season for Christian Leitner and then waived by the Hawks and then you signed with Sacramento. What was that whole process like? Uh, well, it's uh, it's the old uh, phrase when the GM tells you you're part of the future of the franchise, you can start packing your bags because you're out of there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, excuse me. Heard that in uh, Detroit and then the lockout happened after my rookie year in, in the spring of 99 when it ended. I went in to work out. One of my teammates was like, hey, man, what are you doing here? It was in the paper this morning. You got traded. I was wow. like, they can do that? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, the GM wouldn't even talk to me for like an hour and a half, two hours. And then he finally was like, oh, they got gassed. It was in the paper, but he didn't know. I'm like, well, he seemed to be correct. You know, like, oh, he didn't know, right? But um, yeah, so I got down to uh, Atlanta and they said, oh, you're part of the future of this franchise. Turned out they just wanted rid of Christian Leitner's contract. They didn't really want me. He just had a, a longer contract they wanted out of. Yeah. Uh, so it was a money-saving thing. They didn't have room for me, nor did they want me. They had Dikembe Mutombo on the team. Talk about a guy that, that people don't really talk about as one of the most dominating players. He was ridiculously talented. People think, oh, he was just a defensive player, a block, shot blocker. He had incredible hands. He had incredible footwork and could score in the post on just about anybody. Uh, so that's another guy, sorry, randomly <laughs> comes into my thought process. Yeah. But um, uh you know, I get told in Atlanta, part of the future of the franchise. I'm like, okay, I haven't seen my my uh, wife and my five-month-old in three months. Do you think it'd be okay if they moved down here? I'm going to find a house. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to be here. We got You got two years left on your deal. I'm like, okay. So I found a house. I leased a house. My wife and my five-month-old baby get to town. And three days later, they're going, hey, we want to put you on the injured reserve list without an injury and see what happens. Or we can cut you. And I went out to my agent. I said, hey, uh, this is the deal. And then he goes, hold on. Tell him you need some time. And a couple hours later, he called me back. He said, there's four teams that want to sign you. I think Sacramento is the best one for you, the best fit for you. 
and uh, they'll sign you right now to a one to the, for the one year deal for the rest of the season. And I said, but Atlanta still has to pay me the rest of my rookie contract. And he goes, oh yeah. So I was like, all right. So wow. um, I went back into Atlanta. Uh, they they cut me. I told them to cut me, and they cut me. And the next day, I flew to Philadelphia, uh, where the Sacramento Kings were playing the uh, Sixers. And I took a physical from the Sixers team doctor and was in a Sacramento Kings jersey that night. So three teams within a month <laughs> or so. <laughs> wow. Uh, and, and really was sulky and, and pouty. And I was out of shape because of lockout. And I was trying to work out. But then uh, my wife had a baby. And, and uh, so I wasn't being as, as professional as I should have been. But that's not why I got traded as soon as the lockout ended. It was because the Detroit Pistons, you know, just didn't want me anymore. Um, and... So I just didn't think that the league was really going to be it for me. Uh, after my rookie year, I bought a house in Kansas that I knew that I could afford. And uh, so I made a smart investment. I made a, f- a few other smart investments just thinking, okay, I can go back to school, become a teacher like I planned to in the first place. I'm only a few credits shy of a master's in education. Uh, and so I was starting to plan my postseason career. And then all of a sudden in Sacramento, um, we get to play in the Utah Jazz and, and Carl Malone is whooping everybody's butt. Talk about another Hall wow. of Famer, top 50 player ever. And this dude uh, is killing us. He's got Chris Webber in foul trouble. He's got Vlade in foul trouble. They go to Jerome James, who's a rookie on the team because he knows him. The coach knows him. He, had, I've been on the team for five minutes. And he just, he, I mean, he destroys Jerome James. Put Lawrence Funderburk in on him. Lawrence Funderburk, 6'9", 220, Ohio State product. He actually started playing for Bobby Knight but didn't like playing for Bobby Knight. So he transferred to Ohio State back home where he's from. And just couldn't hang with him. Carl Malone overpowered him. So finally Rick Adam goes, all right, you, whatever your name is, go in there and try it. <laughs> and I go in there and I frustrate the hell out of one of the top 50 players in the history of the game. I don't know why I just had a really good gig with, with, uh, uh, I could really mess with Carl Malone. I didn't stop him, but he did not like guard playing against me. Uh, I really frustrated him. And I could tell from minute one and really for, for all the other people I've mentioned, Carl Malone probably made me an NBA player because of my success against him, the wow. superstar, uh, because I really frustrated him. He hated playing against me every time I go in. And I knew it because Jock Vaughn, my college teammate, best best man at each other's weddings, uh, roommates all four years, he was a teammate. He was with the Jazz. And he goes, man, Carl hates you. He <laughs> hates you. He does not want to mess with you. And Jack wouldn't give me that information to try to hype me up or anything. I mean, he, he doesn't want me to be successful against the, you know, I'm on the other team. We were competitors. We never hugged before games. We're, we're very close. We never once hugged before a game when we played against each other. Didn't matter what team we were on, whether we played a whole lot or didn't play a whole lot, role reversal, you know, whatever. We, we never hugged before or after games on the court. It was like, no, I'm going to beat your ass. So, yes. um, you know, but it, Getting to Sacramento and going from the end of the bench where I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to be in the league. This is my third team in like 15 seconds. Uh, am, I, am I even going to be an NBA player? And then all of a sudden I get a chance against Carl Malone. I have some great success against him. And then as it turned out, we played against him in the playoffs that year too in the first round. And I had great games against him too. We got bounced, but I still had good success against him. And one of my college teammates, Greg Ostertag, was also on that team. And uh, I knew Greg real well, so I always frustrated Greg. I, I could get under Greg's skin easy because all you had to do was try hard. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, Greg is supremely talented, uh, an amazingly athletic player. People don't give him credit for how amazingly athletic he, w- he was at 7'2", an incredible shot blocker and could dribble, could pass, could shoot. But again, played with a Hall of Famer, so he didn't have to do all those things that he was capable of doing. But also one of, maybe one of the laziest players I ever played with and against. But. <laughs> But, um, you know, sometimes that's how it is when you're so talented and you're so large. Uh, you, sometimes, you know, people don't try as hard as they, they, normal, they would if they were uh, not as gifted or not, not as big. But, yeah, that, that's my Carl Malone story. Love it. Austin? You, uh, you talked about having success against the mailman. What were some of your little tricks or things that you did to guys to get under their skin or try to get that edge? <laughs> It depended on who it was. Some guys, uh, like Dwight Howard, couldn't at that point of his career. He was young as a rookie and all that. Um, he, he, you couldn't. He, he didn't think anybody should be able to talk to him. And so, oh, I just talked his ears off, and he, 
it was so easy to get in between his ears uh, and frustrate him and get him off his game. And he's very narrow, so I could put my hand across the whole of his small back, the small of his back, because he's only 225. He's narrow, and that's what I would do to Miles Turner if I was playing right now. I'd put my hand across Miles Turner back, and he would he'd run away. He'd go out and, and be on the three point line because. And then, again, I'm not knocking Miles Turner. I'm just saying that's what I would do to somebody that's 60 pounds or 50 pounds less than me. Right. You use your strength. Uh, so, to, but but talking to Dwight Howard was the easiest way to get underneath his skin, and I get him in foul trouble every time we played against each other. Uh, Carl, he just couldn't believe that I didn't, I wasn't impressed by his strength. Like I was a lot stronger than I looked, and so when he would try to back me down or, or elbow me or something, and I would just take it and didn't complain and just get went right back at him. He was like, "Damn," you know, like he, <laughs> I'd hear him say "damn" once in a while. And, and like I said, Jack Vaughn used to tell me, he's like, he hates playing against you. I don't know what it is, but he, you, you're in his head. I was like, well, yeah. good. Um, Shaq uh, was just a battle of attrition. It was like, okay, watch out for the elbow uh, on, on the offense, his little move when he t- goes over his left shoulder. Uh, he knocked me out in the game one time. So watch out for that. Try to talk wow. to him a little bit, get him happy. Uh, you never wanted to piss Shaq off because a pissed off Shaq is a much better Shaq. You know, most superstars are that way. You get them mad, uh, the good ones, and and they just get better. So you don't want to make him mad. Uh, Dwight was the opposite. You made him mad, and he just end up in foul trouble and on the bench. I'm like, wait, yeah. ah, how you doing over there? <laughs> um, but um, like a guy like David Robinson, I knew his back was bad. And and this sounds dirty, but hey, it's a dirty game. Uh, I would I would make sure that I hit him in the back. I make sure Jeez. that I, that a forearm would get to his low back, his hips, uh, and sometimes he he'd wince in pain, and I'd see it, and I'm like, well, sorry, you shouldn't be out here then. And <laughs> you know, you're way better than me, but I'm gonna make you not as good as me. And um, you know, don't wear a knee brace around me. Don't wear an elbow brace around me, a wrist pad, anything, anything I see that you think that I know is hurting you, you're gonna get hit in that spot. Uh, I also know some pressure points. There's a, pot, a spot inside your elbow uh, where all the nerve bundles meet. It's kind of like you get hit in the funny bone. Well, you whack somebody in there, it makes their hand go numb. You're not going to shoot very well if you can't feel your hand. <laughs> um, so, you know, I would tr- I would hit people. Bill Walton once taught me. I grew up with his kids out in San Diego. And uh, he once told me about a, a pressure point in between the ribs. And, man, that thing works, too. If you hit somebody in between the ribs, they're gonna they're not going to be happy. Wow. Uh, and it hurts really bad. Now, it's hard to get it in there when you got big fingers like I do, but some of these big <laughs> dudes got big gaps in between their ribs like I do. <laughs> you, you try to, you know, you're guarding somebody all of a sudden, you stick a thumb in between their ribs. They're going to scream. It hurts. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make it hurt. So <laughs> a lot of guys wear flat jackets under their jerseys now, those pads. It's because of guys like me that, that did stuff like that, that do stuff like that. Uh, to, to negate their talent or athleticism advantage over me, uh, I would use my brain and my strength and, and my ability to get my feet where it needed to be. Amazing. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. That's right. So let's move on to Indiana because this is an Indiana podcast. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to run out of time before we talk about them. But so you went to Indiana in this huge trade from Sacramento was Sacramento telling you similar things to what Detroit was telling you? Like you were the future of Sacramento or could you tell that your time in Sacramento was coming to an end? No, I was part of the future of the franchise. Uh, I was three years in on a six year deal, uh, which was my fifth year, um, in, in total as a Sacramento King. And, uh, it was summertime and, and yeah, three team deal. I was, uh, Fully expecting, had I, I had just built a house. It was my third house in Sacramento because uh, I kept bouncing around. Yeah. Uh, but I had just built a house the preceding season and had lived in it for about nine months. And then I was back in Kansas that summer in 2003. No, right. 2002. 2003. Yes, it was yeah. summer of 2003. And um, playing cards in the basement with my friends. And they're like, hey, man, turn on the TV. Let's watch some sports center or whatever. And uh, Came across the ticker, three-team deal. Sacramento Kings trade Brad Miller to Sacramento, and Scott Pollard's going to Indiana, and Hito Turkoglu's going to San Antonio. San Antonio's sending uh, Danny Ferry and some other player up to Indiana, and uh, the Pacers waived Danny Ferry. There was all kinds of uh, wow. parts to that piece of that trade. And um, so uh, we... Uh, 
did the deal and and uh, I'm sitting there going, you can get traded on TV. Like, really? That's <laughs> first time it was in the newspaper. Second time it was on TV. If I'd have lasted long enough, it would have been on the Internet first. Right. Twitter. <laughs> you can trade it on Twitter? Yes. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> yeah. Then I, uh, I I was sitting on my uh, driveway the next morning, and uh, I'm talking with one of my friends on the phone. He's like, man, did, you, you didn't know that was coming, did you? I was like, no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I didn't want to be an Indiana Pacer. I wasn't planning on being an Indiana Pacer. And, and all of a sudden my phone clicks and I look over, it's a 317 area code. I go, hey buddy, let me call you back. Uh, or just hang on, it might be important. So I click over and it's Larry Bird. And wow. Larry's like, hey Scott, how you doing, man? It's good to talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, uh, can I get off the other line real quick? I just, it was one of my buddies, I'll get off the line. He was like, yeah, no problem. And so I click over and I go, hey Mike, uh, it's Larry Bird on the other line. He goes, look asshole, if you don't want to talk to me anymore, you don't have to lie to me and tell me every bird's on the other line. Just hang up, dick. <laughs> I go, no, really, it's, oh, never mind, just click. <laughs> so that was that was my first time talking to Larry Bird. And, um, you know, I, I quickly found out uh, that this is, a, it's a great franchise, great owners all the way down. Uh, they, they do a great job. It's tough in a small market. It always has been. It always will be in the NBA. Uh, the NBA does their best to try to make it a, a balanced playing field, but it's just not, and it never will be. Uh, when when it comes to money, that the, the big markets are able to spend on on free agents and players, right. and make get up with uh, off the court, uh, whether it's television deals or whatever. Uh, so um, you know the the Simons have done a great job uh, and spent money when they needed to, but always remained a profitable franchise, which again is so difficult to do. So. I have a ton of respect, especially now that I'm done and I do a lot of stuff with the Pacers. I have a ton of respect for the franchise. I didn't like my time here as a player. I thought Rick Carlisle was not the right coach for that roster and definitely not for me. Uh, I had never been a guy, I'd never been on a team that was the walking up the court, look over, get a signal and um, run a play and shoot with three to four seconds left on the shot clock. I'd never been on a team like that before. And Rick Carlisle was that type of coach. He was like, we're going to win in the 80s. We're not going to score in the hundreds. We're going to grind it out on defense. We're going right. to play health defense. We're going to, you know, we're going to do all those things that was, to me, extremely boring, extremely uh, indicative of a coach that doesn't trust the talent on the floor. And that was fine. And Rick is a great coach. And Rick's still coaching for the Dallas Mavericks. And I think he's learned a lot. I think he's a much different coach now than he was back then. Uh, but I really always liked Rick Carlisle off the court. He's a genius. A lot of people don't know. He plays the piano like the wind blows. It's incredible. Wow. He, he's a great guy. I really, really like Rick Carlisle. I just hated playing for him. <laughs> <laughs> so your team, uh, that Pacers team was really good. You were there three seasons. Did you know how good the team was then? Or did did you, I mean, the Sacramento Kings were great too, but were, was the Pacers team the best team you'd been on then? Or were the Sacramento Kings still the best team? Uh, the Sacramento Kings was th that that 0102 team was probably the best team I was ever on. Uh, from top to bottom, we had we had so many weapons. Our second team would have started. Uh, you know, you, you hear that a lot, but our second team would have started on a lot of the teams in the NBA. Uh, every one of us, uh, from yeah. Bob Jackson to John Barry to Hito Turkoglu uh, to to me and and um, you know whether it was Lawrence Funderburken starting five uh, or the second five or, or uh, second unit or whoever else it was. Corliss Williams. I mean, we, we had some crazy, well, Corliss was on the 0102 team, but we had some crazy talent on that team. So I think that was the best one I ever played on. But, uh, you know, coming from that team and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm inserted into a team that, that, uh, needed a banger because it was Brad Miller and Jermaine O'Neal. Neither one of them is, is a guy that's known for boxing people out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ever. Uh, so, um, you know, it was, it was a situation that, that fit for me, um, and then Jeff Foster, uh, was just healthier. Uh, my back was, I, I had actually fractured my spine in Sacramento and nobody really knew that. And wow. I sat out four months of that 0203 season in Sacramento, came back, first game back, I'm playing against the jazz and I snapped my hand. Uh, my finger gets caught in Greg Ostertag's Jersey and it broke my hand. It, it just did a little spiral fracture of my hand. So Sat out a couple more games for that, and I, they let me play with a little plastic thing on my hand. So I didn't miss too much time with that. Came back, went out to uh, the Pacers' land and, and uh, kicked those guys' butts, put, um, I don't know, 
16 and 17 on the Pacers, something like that. Yeah. And so that summer, the Pacers were like, oh, we got to have this guy. We don't have anybody that rebounds and block shots and scores. So they thought I was going to do that every night. And turned out my back wasn't that healthy. I had only played, um, you know, half a season. Uh, we got bounced in the playoffs that year, 0203 with the Kings. And so I come out here with a lot of high expectations from the front office. And then the training staff takes a look at my back and they're like, oh, boy. And so I spent a lot of my time rehabbing this team, uh, that 0 3 4 Pacers team. Awesome team. Loved playing with Reggie. Loved Jamal Tinsley. I know he doesn't have the greatest reputation around here, but Jamal was one of my favorite point guards I ever played with. And I just, uh, as I alluded to earlier, I wonder if Rick Carlisle, as he is now, would have made that team even better. Because we were a 61-win team. I mean, we were the right. best team in the Eastern Conference. And, you know, we get to the Eastern Conference Finals. And um, I had been to the Western Conference Finals before. I, I'd never been to the Finals at that point. But, you know, I was used to being in the playoffs. So I think I helped down the stretch with that team and, and the maturity of, like, hey, like, hey we, I've been here before. We just got to keep doing this or keep doing that. And I think it was just so much inner turmoil on that team as it came to play out the next season, <laughs> um, <laughs> that I, I think that we were our own worst enemy um, because the chemistry was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. And so when, the, when things didn't go our way, and it, even when we were winning 61 games that season, there were still times where it was like, man, the wheels have completely fallen off the bus. Why are we going in different directions after practice? It was just like scatter uh, some days. And so with again, Jamal Tinsley uh, with the shackles off and being allowed to create more, uh, you deal with some of the turnovers, but you also get way more points and assists from a guy like Jamal Tinsley when you, when you let him go. Um, and yeah. I think that if Rick Carlisle back then was the coach that he is now, I think that we would have even been a better team and, and, that Jamal would have been looked at as in a different light as a much better player because he was a great creator, an amazing passer, uh, and really in a, in a more or a less structured offense, I think would have been uh, a, a really key player and, and made this team so much better. Uh, you mentioned some inner turmoil in those Pacers teams. Uh, everyone knows probably the most infamous uh, thing that's ever happened in the NBA, Malice at the Palace. Uh, you were there. What was going on in your mind when that was happening? Oh, I've told this story a bunch. Um, <laughs> first of all, let me put let me put an asterisk next to that statement of it being the worst thing or worst brawl in the history of the NBA. Just since it's been televised in the 70s, 60s, whenever fights happened almost every game. Players <laughs> got best, like they just punched each other all the time. People fought a lot in the old days, but we don't know because it was not on TV. Right. Um, you know, if you if you've ever seen uh, what's that Jackie Moon movie with the Flint Tropics, uh, Semi Pro. Semi Pro, yeah. If you've ever seen Semi Pro, watch that because that's literally what it was like. It was like they would fight, 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 and then if they happened to be on TV, it's like, okay, everybody wipe the blood off, uh, make it look good, like this didn't just happen. <laughs> We're going to go to commercial while people are beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> but let's fast forward to the, to the, to the malice uh, in the palace. And, you know, obviously there was, there was animosity between the two teams. We, we were familiar with each other. We played against each other a lot. There was bad blood. Uh, again, I, I would think that Rick would, would love to have the last minute of that game back where he takes out the starters and, and gets some of the bench players in the game in a game that was out of hand. I think he wanted to put it to them uh, and increase the lead when it was getting chippy out there and probably should have pulled Ron a little earlier and Jermaine a little earlier and getting those guys out of the game and diffuse the situation and it never happens. But if it was a fifth, right? So um, it happened and, and it was awful. I was in a suit. Again, my back was not good. Uh, right. And so uh, I was just sitting there having been part of big fights with the Sacramento Kings and the Lakers or the Magic or whatever. Uh, and having been suspended one game for stepping on the court when Bobby Jackson threw a ball at Tracy McGrady in Orlando, um, you know, I just stepped on the court to get a better view. They were on the other side of the court. I was clearly not going to join in the fray, but they fined me $5,000 and suspended me the next game in Miami. 
So I'd had a history of that and knew I'm not spending money to go throw some punches. Like what? Do we, <laughs> nobody's in danger. No one's going to get in a real fight here. No one's going to get really hurt. And if some stupid fan comes out of the fan stands and wants to fight, well, I'm twice their size and I'm pretty sure of that. So I'm not really yeah. worried at this point. But then it did start to get a little surreal because more and more people started getting on the court and it's like, all right, we got to get out of here. So then at that point, you know, there's there's tons of stories and there's tons of, of different people's perspective. And they a lot of us have uh, sometimes conflicting stories. But, you know, you see what you see and you remember what you remember. Um, but, you know, after uh, a little while, they finally announced that the game was called. We just started pushing towards the tunnel as a group. It was kind of like a, 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 a sheepdog herding the sheep. Um, just trying to get, uh, you know, everybody out. It's not like I was the sheepdog, but I was one of the sheepdogs trying to like, all right, forget it. We're not going to punch any more fans. Let's go. And we, you know, I ruined a suit. They got, I got stuff thrown at me on the way out. Uh, people were throwing beer or whatever they had on me. Uh, and all of us, not just me. Uh, and we, we finally got out and I mean, it's, it's a classic and I'm not the only one that's ever told this story, but I certainly love repeating it. Uh, we finally get calmed down, and even the players and coaches, some of them were fighting each other in the in the locker room. Ours, <laughs> but finally yeah. everybody gets gets calmed down. And Ron Artest goes, "You think we're gonna get fined for this?" <laughs> <laughs> like it's one of the greatest stories in the history of the NBA, and it shows you the level uh, that he was at that point. Now Ron is a great guy off the court. I love Ron Artest. He was one of my least favorite teammates because on the court you didn't know what you were gonna get. Because back then he wouldn't go to counseling. He wouldn't take his medication. Uh, and, and he learned from that, obviously he lost a lot of money, but one of my favorite people off the court is Ron Artest. I really like that guy. That's and, awesome. Um, it, it, but yeah, I mean that, that cost us that whole year that was a waste and we still made the playoffs. It might've cost you the championship. Yeah, it really did. I think because we, that, that year we had everybody back. We were supposed to be better. And uh, we just, you know, with all those suspensions, we, we barely made the playoffs and, and, um, still could have been really, really good, but just yeah, it, it wrecked it. And that fran- the franchise didn't. It took a while. It took years for the franchise to recover. And you know, Reggie retired after that second after the Malice in the Palace year, and he had one more year on his deal. Uh, I heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true, but I heard a rumor that uh, he said if, if a certain player gets traded, and I haven't mentioned his name, but if a certain player gets traded, I'll play my third year. And they were like, we're not trading that guy. So. Reggie retired. That's that's what I heard. Jermaine O'Neal. Um, that's that's who it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's the rumor. But um, wow, so, uh, the franchise took a few years to recover from that. And even then, in my third year, we still made the playoffs again. Got bounced in the first play- first round. But uh, that 0506 team um, basically just picking up the pieces of of what had happened. Still, uh, and so it was. It was unfortunate, and, it, and I felt badly for, for the coaching staff and some of my teammates. And, and really, I, I think it might have, might have shortened my career a little bit because I didn't get a lot of looks, uh, and I was still healing. But, like, you know, when you get to be part of something like that, and I think other players more so than myself, but, you know, you, you almost become damaged goods because it's like, well, I don't know what they're going to do, you know, if, if we have another argument. Are they going to start running in the stands and, and beating people up again? Like. I, <laughs> It's unfair because it's not likely, it's not realistic to think that way. But it, when you're talking about the 450 best in the world, I can take this guy who's never been in a fight, or I can take this guy that's been in a fight and has a history of it and been suspended for a whole year. I'm going to go with this guy that's never been in a fight. Their talent level isn't that different that I'm going to feel badly about passing on the guy that might be a little bit better but has a history of fighting. So, you know, those things come into play as a professional. Yeah. And when the when the line is so thin between you and another player, uh, I always felt like I didn't have that margin to to be that uh, to do that, have any off the court problems. You know, I had teammates that were always battling the drug tests and trying to figure out ways to pass them. And you know, I never never had any issues with any of that stuff. I didn't drive drunk. I didn't worry about DUIs because I didn't drink uh, a lot. And once in a while, I did during season, but mostly I didn't drink much during the basketball season, if at all. Yeah. Because I didn't want to worry about, you know, having to do something that I'd have to explain, like why I was a professional athlete that fit that stupid category that every other professional athlete fits. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about the championship run that you had in Boston and like what that experience was like. I know that was the end of your career. 
So it wasn't like your Sacramento experiences or um, like the cent- the middle of your career when you're in your prime. But during your time in Boston and that championship run, like what factors played into you guys winning that championship? What role did you play on that team? What was some stuff that went on that year that uh, was just interesting? Well, I'd like to think I, I, I helped that team uh, get to the, to the championship by showing toughness early. I got hurt there right when I got there, first day we were practicing basically in September because we were going to Rome and, and England in the preseason. And I rolled my ankle again. Uh, and, uh, it blew up pretty big and the, I just kept playing and, and we finished playing pickup games. I took the tape off and the, the, a lot of guys saw my ankle. They're like, what the hell? And <laughs> the, the trainer was like, what the hell, what were you doing? I was like, Oh, I rolled it early, but it's fine. I don't feel that leg very much. My back's bad. So my left leg's partially numb. So it wow. didn't really bother me. Um, but as it turned out, it was my career ending injury. But uh, I kept playing. I kept icing it. I kept trying to practice. And then finally I got sent home from Rome because it was just, it looked, it looked ugly. Uh, and they did an MRI and they said, you're getting surgery. Whether it's now or, or whenever, you're getting surgery at some point. I said, well, if, I'm not, if I get surgery right now, how long am I out? He said, four months. I was like, it's, it's November. Uh, that's, I'll, I'll miss the season. You know, yeah. we're going to win a championship. So I decided to keep playing. Uh, so I was in and out of the lineup, depending on my ankle health. I was playing against Shaq in uh, Phoenix. He was with the Suns then. And uh, Kendrick Perkins, our starting center, was out. So I was starting and uh, turned to run and something in my leg popped. I thought I t- uh, ruptured my Achilles tendon uh, because uh, I wasn't able to push off anymore. It turned out it was a, a ligament on the side of your ankle. Um, and there's two of them that attach at your knee and one attaches under your ankle bone. That's the one I ruptured. And then there's another one that attached. Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I stretched that one and tore it a little bit. And then the other one attaches underneath your ankle and goes down to the bottom of your foot and attaches to your, uh, your big metatars- metatarsal, the big bone in your, in your foot. Right. And, uh, that one ruptured. Wow. But anyway, I lied about it and I said, Oh, just, it's okay. I think I just kind of tweaked it. Because uh, I knew I was starting the next night in the Portland because Kendrick was still out. So I faked it through warm-ups in Portland and jumped off the wrong foot because I couldn't jump off my left foot. And at one point, Joel Prisbilla, you guys remember big Joel Prisbilla, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. Household name. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I had him on my back and the ball bounced over our head and he got the ball because I couldn't jump. And I, I whacked him and, and he got an and one. And Doc calls a timeout, and he's like, what the hell are you doing out there? And I was like, no, nah, you know, just like I'm, I'm a little sore. He goes, no, man, you can't jump. I was like, Doc, I never could. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, I was trying to be funny and distract him because I still wanted to keep playing. He goes, no, nah, man, you're done. And they sent me home from that trip, and I got the MRI, and they, they were like, yeah, you're getting surgery. So um, long story short, sorry, there's no such thing as that with me. But um, <laughs> so I think that – Having gone through all that and having seen, you know, Big Baby Davis was watching me and he's like, man, I don't, what are you doing? Like, I was like, man, look, this is what you do. You overlook injury, you play. You don't sit out just because you got to hang now. Like, you got to play. And, and especially at my age and my career, we're going on a championship run. You, nothing hurts. You just go. Right on. And so I think that I helped with the toughness of that team. And then they signed PJ Brown to take my place. And he had a great playoff run, a uh, veteran leader uh, and, and a great guy. And helped him win that championship. But I, I would like to think that I helped with that. Uh, one of the other things that a lot of people don't know, I've told the story, but I, I don't know if a lot of people know the story, but Rajon Rondo, he was young, and, and he'd get kicked out of practice every once in a while because he'd butt heads with Doc Rivers. And he'd be like, oh, man, I hate that guy. <laughs> I had to go talk to him. <laughs> and I said, man, what's wrong? And he, well, he's riding me. Doc riding me. I was like, what position do you play? He goes, guard. Why? I said, what position did Doc Rivers, one of the greatest point guards ever play? He goes, guard. Why? I said, well, he knows your position. He's not yelling at the big guys like he yells at you. He knows you, and he knows your position, and I think he sees greatness in you, and you're not being great all the time, but he wants you to be great all the time. So if you think about it like that, he's not really pissed at you. He's pissed that you're not playing up to the level he thinks you are. So he yeah. thinks so highly of you that you know you had to just speak it in a different way so that he would understand it. Then he'd be like, oh, you know, so he'd calm down like, oh, yeah, I didn't really think about it like that. And so I'd calm him down off a bridge once in a while during the season when he get kicked out of practice and like, hey, man, listen, it's just Doc being Doc and you're not <laughs> going to change him. 
he's our coach. We're going on a championship run. You really want to walk off this team? Because he'll kick you off. <laughs> and <laughs> we got other guards. So um, I think it was, it was sometimes it was tough love and sometimes it was, it was you know, just trying to, to have him understand what was really going on as a young, hot-headed player, having been an old guy. So I'd like to think there was a few things I did help with that championship team, that championship run. But as I said earlier, I was always lucky enough to be a part of championship teams. So I, I never felt like uh, some of the things that I contribute were, were big things. But if you look at them, uh, you know, being on time, being early, being the hardest worker, uh, you know, helping your teammates, encouraging your teammates, whether you're in the game or you're rehabbing, you know, playing hurt, whatever it was, um, you know, not that playing hurt is to be glorified because I probably could have played four or five more years in the NBA had I been a little bit more intelligent about playing mm -hmm. hurt and sat out at times when I should have sat out longer. But, um, you know, those little things are what makes you a great teammate and helps you be a guy that makes your team better even if you're not in the starting lineup. And, and those are some of the things I talk about when I give speeches, because uh, I do give speeches once in a while. I'm a, I'm a real estate broker too, so uh, up here in, in the village of West Clay, but I've worked all over Indianapolis. But, you know, um, I, I always try to be the, I always tried to be the guy that helped his team be a better team. Uh, whatever they needed me to do, that's what I was willing to do. And, and I think that that's uh, kind of what helped that Boston Celtics team you know, big baby Davis, as I said, looking at me like, man, why are you, why are you even trying? You should be sitting out. I'm like, look, man, if I don't do it, you're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, like I'm going to play until, until I can't, but you, if you get the chance, you get out there and if you get something a little tweaked, you better play through it. Now, if you're seriously injured, that's different, but if it hurts, shoot, you're an NBA player, everything hurts. Um, and so I, I would like to think some of those little intangibles that I brought to the court on all the teams that I that I learned from, from high school to college to the NBA, and learned from some of the greatest players that have ever played this game, uh, that, that, that I was able to help pass some of those things on and help that team win, even though I wasn't in the lineup for the last half of the season or the playoffs. Right. Uh, real quick before we go, did you know Paul Pierce pooped his pants? <laughs> no, not at the time. You didn't? No, at the time, I, I had no idea. No, he, I, I'm pretty sure he was mortified. <laughs> and probably only the training staff knew, and he probably threatened them. Because, <laughs> I mean, the team, like, the NBA is a very small group of people. I mean, we knew we knew personal details about guys and other teams and how they, like, oh, yeah, he's got, a, he's got a contract he takes everywhere on the road with him for the ladies. Like, you know, we knew stuff about everybody. Wow. It's a small family. So, you know, when you're talking about that, that for me to not know as a, as a teammate, he had to have not told anybody and told the training staff, look, you tell anybody I'll murder you. <laughs> <laughs> it took him 11 years to finally come out with it too. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, not that that's something you'd want to broadcast anyway, and I can't <laughs> believe he did it on the platform he did, but hey, yeah. the truth comes out and eventually, as they say. Right. And the truth, he came out. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. We had a lot of fun. Um, Hope you had at least an okay time too. <laughs> hey, I, you know, I, I'm a talker. Anytime I get to start talking, it's hard to shut me up. So thanks for letting me talk, guys, and uh, good luck with the podcast. Our thanks again to Scott Pollard for joining us today. Uh, how great was that, Jack? Dude, amazing. Yes, yeah, so good. What was your favorite moment from that interview? Just hearing him talk about all those old players was incredible. Just firsthand stories like that. It's, it's amazing. Never done anything like this before. This is our first time interviewing uh, a former player. It's the first time interviewing anybody for the podcast. Yeah. So just being able to hear the stories from someone who lived it is incredible. Yeah, and he had an incredible experience in the NBA. Yeah. Incredible. I uh, particularly loved, A, when he talked about uh, how he would dominate Drummond. Yeah. In today's, <laughs> yes. in today's NBA. Um, I, also, I also liked when he got on uh, the part about not having to shoot threes and how he could still play in this era. Because, I mean, and he did make a good point. Uh, obviously, it was a different time than people didn't shoot threes as much. But also, he did play with a ton of great he really did. shooters. Like he Five of the top ten, right? I mean, he yeah, he obviously he played with Reggie. He played with Bibby, which he mentioned. Ray Allen. Um, Peja. Ray Allen. Doug Christie. You know, Paul Pierce. Yeah. Just all those. Ray LaFrance in college as well. Like Played with a ton of great shooters, so he never had to. Um, 
and you know there there's definitely still room in the NBA this year for for bruisers like he was. So I oh, thought that sure. was real interesting to hear him talk about that stuff too. Yeah, totally. And when he was talking about dominating Drummond, I kind of believe him. Where I believe that he could get into Drummond's head and body up, which we haven't had on the Pacers now. So it would be nice to have a Scott Pollard type of player. I think he needs to get in a room with Sabonis and Turner and teach them some of those tricks, like. He was really he really got to guys. It sounds like so yeah, he needs they, to show them all the pressure points. Yeah, they need some help <laughs> with that. I agree with them there. Yes. Thank you for listening today. Um, we'll be back to our normal podcast stuff next week with uh, all the talk about the games we've had the last couple weeks here. Which me and Combs are going to the game on Wednesday. You are. Which is has probably already happened when this pod comes out. Is going to have happened when this yes. pod comes out. But we'll be at the game. Bogey's first game back. We're hyped. We're actually going separate. We didn't plan it together. It just turns out we're both going to the same game. So we'll be there. We'll get some in-game analysis. But uh, Remember, Blockheads by Combs. New single out right now. Check it out, please. Support our producer. And we will see you next time. Peace out. Peace. You steal my peace out? That's what I say. <laughs> peace out. <laughs> about team basketball it's all about playing the game the right way the name on the front of the jersey is more important than that name on the back of the jersey you play for the indiana pacers that's who you represent